Well, good morning, everyone. Happy to see you this morning. If you have your Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 2, page 839 in our church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. Wasn't that meet and greet thing fun? Guys didn't want to sit down. It's good. Chapter 2, we're going to read um, all 15 verses, even though most of our attention will be on verses 11 through 14. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, the kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and apostle. I'm telling you the truth, I am not lying and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Do do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow together and pray and seek the help that we need. Our God and Father, here we are again asking for your help and asking for your blessing this morning as we open up the Holy Scriptures. And so we would ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher, that you would enable us to listen, to think, decide, and obey. Father, our lives are in your hands, all events under your care. We rely on you for all things, all the time. So please help us now, we pray, for Jesus' sake, amen. Now, for those of you visiting this morning, we are concluding a series of lessons concerning leadership in God's church. My colleagues and I on the elder board, because of the times we find ourselves in, determined that it would serve us all well if we spent time learning or reaffirming what God has said in his word on this vital topic of leadership in the church in his church. And one of the things we affirmed to another this past week in our monthly meeting is that the line that we've gone down in these talks is the line that we're committed to stay on as a church. And so we have covered the roles of shepherding or elders in three message, messages and the servant role of deacon and deaconesses in two. And in this, we have been discovering, at least I hope we've been discovering along the way, that the local church is absolutely crucial and absolutely primary 
and Christ's kingdom building plans because the church of Jesus Christ lies at the very center of his eternal purpose. In other words, West Cohasset Chapel lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of our God. So if Jesus is committed to his church and he is our example in everything, then surely every Christian should be too. As we have discovered that the church has been given God's instruction and God's attention and God's blessing and God's promises and God's equipping in a way that no other religious institution has the privilege of receiving. And we ought to be very mindful of this and then understand that is why we take these instructions on church order, we take them as something very, very important and crucial so that the world can see how God's visible kingdom, if you would, works. So now we come to what some would say is the most difficult and controversial part of Christian leadership, the the role of Christian women in the local church, or if you like, what is the role of Christian women in the local church? So I have some brief opening remarks, then some headings that we're going to work under. You can see those headings in the back of the worship folder if you've been given one or if you have one. And what we'll do is we'll cover these God-given verses through the pen of the Apostle Paul um, point by point. Now, just some opening remarks. No one who who has just even a basic grasp of world history can deny the oppression of women in the world, in this nation, and in many homes has long been longstanding and, and widespread. The destructive and I would say excessive dominance of the male and the history of our world past and present is, is indisputable if you're really thinking. What women have had to endure in the history of our world with a line of thinking that essentially set it on the false idea that women are less superior than men, that they are simply there to cook, clean, and kiss, that they are to be ruled and run over and not reign and flourish as a woman made in the image of God cannot be denied. And to assume that there's some mythical time period we could go back to in the history of our world since the fall that would set things completely right would be completely foolish. History reveals women were treated as property, as livestock, and mere assets, and they were disposable. So just think with me for a moment. The poverty rates rates of women in our nation and in the world have been embarrassingly higher than men. As long as such statistics have been kept, the horrible percentages of women being raped and physically abused are are vastly higher than men. I mean, so much so when we hear those words, typically we just think of women. New York Times, December 14th, 2011. I'm quoting now. An exhaustive government survey of rape and domestic violence released affirm that sexual violence against women remain endemic in the United States. 91% of all reported rape cases are offenses towards women. Women at work still receive, on average, only 77 cents for each dollar earned compared to her male counterpart. In a representative democracy as ours, we're just a tad under 52% of our population are women. Only 13% of our United States Congress is women. Only 17% of our United States Senate is women. In the history of the Supreme Court of these United States, only four of our Supreme Court justices have been women, four out of 112. If you are a woman and you are over 18, Excuse me. You'll be part of only the third generation of women in our nation that will have the right to vote because in these United States, who many would affirm 
was founded on Christian principles, men did not afford women the right to vote until 1918. In other words, it took 142 years from the birth of our great nation to affirm what the Bible always affirmed, namely, the absolute equality between men and women. Genesis 1.27, God created mankind, Adam, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. Not just him, God blessed them and said to them, not just him, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Both of you, if you would, not just one of you. And when our Lord Jesus Christ, when he walked this earth on his way to his cross so that men and women might be saved the same way, the first person he revealed his Messiahship to was a woman at a well. Jesus healed women. In contrast to the Jewish rabbis, Jesus taught women. Jesus appeared in his resurrection first to a woman. He even relied on women in the support of his ministry. However, all that being said, and although many of us with daughters will send them into a culture that perhaps has, has its best thought, that unless you look terrific in a bathing suit and jeans, good luck. Despite that, it's not my purpose today to address a far, the far-reaching topics such as what is the right role of women in society, what is actually biblical femininity, what is biblical masculinity, which I think we need to do a far better job at in these days in evangelical Christianity. We're not going to address the relationship to a husband and wife specifically. If you're interested in that, you can go to our website and find a couple of sermons on that topic. What we're going to do is we're going to put all those things aside, not because they don't matter, because they do matter greatly. But I say these things because the question that we have before us, what is the role of the Christian woman in, in the local church, has a backdrop that I just described that calls for attention and that backdrop is not paradise. And we still, as a culture, have an awfully long way to go. So then the first word there is context. The wider context in which Paul is speaking to in this letter is Timothy, to Timothy as the pastor. And so Timothy's going to receive clear instruction on how people, how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is God's church. So you have God's people, God's household, which is God's church. So you say, well, how do you know that, Joe? Well, I know that because Paul says that. We read it last week, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Paul tells us exactly why he wrote this letter. I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. And this makes good sense. If we are God's people and we are God's household and so God's church, God does not leave us to ourselves in these matters. God conveys to us how we ought to conduct ourselves in the church. And he doesn't do it by giving us secret messages or codes. He doesn't tell Timothy to build a consensus for truth or have a conference on what is truth. He does it clearly as he writes his written word. So right away we can say that there's nothing marginal about the importance of Paul's instruction and there's nothing vague 
in the giving of Paul's instruction. This is important for Timothy and Ephesus and this is important for us because this will have some, on some measure, enduring application to the church of Jesus Christ in every generation, everywhere, and so here. So let me just give you a couple examples. In verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy and so the church who to pray for, what to pray for, and how to pray. Who are we to pray for? Verse 1, we are to pray for everybody, those in authority, in royalty, and from every country, especially. That's verse 1. What are we to pray for? Well, there's salvation. That's implied. Verse 4. And how are we to pray? 89% of people in America say that they pray. Well, how are we to pray? Verse 5. There's only one mediator between God and man and God, and that is the man Christ Jesus. So how we are to pray is in Jesus' name. And then look there in verse 8. Paul addresses men. He tells them that they must pray with holy hands in the air and no anger and disputing in their hearts. In other words, purity in their deportment as they pray. And then verse 9, his concern for women and their propriety in public worship. And so both concerns for men and for women are essentially the same. Namely, both men and women in God's church are to live holy lives. And both men and women are to participate in public worship. Not any way they like, but how God has said. And God has said here, purity and deportment in the church at prayer, men, and propriety in your presentation in the church, women. And the difficulty here lies in two fronts. First, if someone chooses to ignore these instructions altogether, thus creating chaos in public worship, or, secondly, someone goes to these verses with just a wooden or flat interpretation. In other words, men, every time you pray, you better lift up your hands and women dress down and not nice. There is nothing here which lends to these flat interpretations. The principle is simple. As you take the whole Bible in view and lay it to bear on these verses, the posture of men and prayer is purity. Hands up was a cultural issue and not a universal principle. How do we know? We know because prayer postures differ in our Bibles. There's not one physical posture that is prescribed exclusively in our Bible when we pray. So we can stand, we can sit, we can bow, and we can prostrate ourselves before the Lord. The principle then, which is timeless, is this. Men... When you pray, pray, your posture should be purity, purity in heart. Okay, then the appearance of a woman in public worship, propriety. Now listen carefully because an interpretation principle is being applied here that we're going to rely on later. This verse 9 doesn't imply women must neglect their appearance or conceal their God-given beauty that every woman has. So that you, the drabbier you look or, or the frumpish or more plain you look in your wardrobe, that would be the better thing. The word modest that Paul uses in verse 9 has the idea of having regard for others. So we ought not to think that plain or sloppy or disordered or fully covered means holy. Because plain or sloppy or disordered or fully covered doesn't necessarily mean holy and that's the point. And a wooden application would lead us down this unsupportive trail. So in the case of women's apparel, 
There's all the difference in the world between what is seductive and what is attractive. And I suspect that most women know the difference. And each generation has their cues. So look at verse 9. Braided hair is a no-no. Okay, why no braided hair? Is that a universal principle for all time? Or is that a cultural issue for their time? It's a cultural issue for their time. How do we know? We know because the setting of this letter in Ephesus had hundreds of female prostitutes who were employed for service in the temple of Diana. You can read about in Acts chapter 19. And the type of dress these women would employ is the type of dress that Paul tells the Christian women in Ephesus to avoid. That's verse 9 of 1 Timothy 2, which included braided hair. So, So think with me. A picture of promiscuity in Paul's day that everyone would know would be braided hair with all those fixings. However, contrast that with a picture of propriety all of us would agree on right now. I think all of us would agree on right now that those cute little Ingle girls, Laura and Carrie from Little House on the Prairie, right? We would all say, those girls are proper. But those girls walk around with what? Braided hair, right? You see, so that's why you can't go to an alive text with a dead, flat, wooden interpretation. So what's the principle Paul is trying to convey? Well, the principle that Paul is trying to convey is a timeless principle, which he establishes there in verse 10. And the principle is this. In the life of the church, clothes do not make the woman. No, good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. That's the point. So ladies, what are you to be known for? What you are to be known for is not so much what you put on, but the good deeds that you pass out. In other words, as Jesus said to both men and women, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And Paul is simply saying, don't be the kind of lady that is immediately noticed for the way you dress, the way your hair is, jewelry and so on. But rather, be the kind of woman that is immediately noticed by kindness, service, integrity, and holiness. And if you really think about that and you're listening, what is so hard about that? But what happens is, is that men and sometimes women go to this text and they develop all kinds of flights of fancy about dress and about ladies and, you know, you can hear, the, I can hear, I've heard this guy in my head all week. I'll tell you one thing, you know, and you just want to say, just back off and think and be sensible. You see, dear ones, we can interpret the Bible literally. Yes, we can, but not literalistically. So we must interpret the Bible within the framework, within the style of writing, the context that speaks to one time and the principles established in those contexts that speaks and is applied to all time which is why I took the time to lay down this interpretation principle so that in coming to this monster verse that's just staring at me in verse 11 and 12 and so on, we can address the role in the local church sensibly and biblically, which I'm going to try to do. That's the context. Okay, the second word is command, right? What is a woman to do in the church? Verse 11, a woman is to learn. Now, most of us, We would jump right into quietness and full submission and say, what is that all about? Well, okay, I'm with you, but let's understand this first. What's happening here? Well, first of all, Paul is changing everything in his context. Because this is in sharp contrast to 
the chauvinistic rabbis of Paul's day. You see, if you were a Jew- Jewish woman sitting in a synagogue service, the Babylonian Talmud said, <clears throat> men come to learn and the women come to hear. The Jerusalem Talmud, it would be better for the words of the Torah to be burned than that they should be entrusted to a woman. And that is the frame of mind that marks Paul's day, and especially in the Jewish mind. And so in the Jewish mind, a woman can listen, but she can't learn. And then you might as well burn the book instead of teaching the women the book. Paul says, strike that. The women are to learn. They are to benefit. They are to grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is absolute equality in the spiritual privileges of men and women. Just quote one simple scripture, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But in the context of public worship in the church, in the church, not everywhere, this is where people go astray, not everywhere, but in the church, their learning comes by way of sitting in quiet submission and not standing and teaching. And the word quietness that Paul uses ought not to sidetrack us in any way. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 14 because quietness is simply a clear expression of the principle of submission which Paul is laying down here. Now stay with me. Quietness in a teaching setting given to the instructor is a mode of submission that both men and women should give to the instructor. If you read in the Greek, it would read, a woman must quietly receive instruction with all submission. Now, this principle of submission is stressed in all of the scriptures. And submission must always be properly understood and applied of every area of Christian living. Because, but because we're such rebellious creatures, whenever we hear the word submission, man or woman, many times it brings out the worst in us. It would, because we think submission and automatically we think less than. And we want to be thought of as more than. So if someone says submission, we think less than. We say strike that. And if someone says more than, we, we embrace that. However, when the Bible speaks of submission, it gives us a better picture. The Bible speaks about the submission of every Christian to God the Father. James 4. The Bible speaks about the submission of all things to the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.22, Philippians 3.21. The Bible speaks about the submission of all Christians to one another in the fear or the reverence of Christ. Ephesians 5.21. The Bible speaks of the submission of the church family to those whom God has placed in a position of leadership or eldership. 1 Peter 5.5 and Titus 2. And it speaks to the submission of the husband to God in his role of leadership and the submission of the wife to God and exercising her role as a submissive helpmate, Ephesians 5.22. And listen carefully. The Bible speaks of submission when it speaks to God as being the head of Christ. Thereby, you have a picture of a loving son submitting to his father who he is equal to, 1 Corinthians 11.3. So what is to be understood in these examples of submission when it comes within the framework of human to human, man to man, man to woman, wife to husband, and Christ to God, that there is nothing inferior implied in submission. Never. And that's why one could have trouble with the Christian woman may or may not do in the church because they they wrongly think right away status and not function. They think status and not simply role. So just let me give you an example when you think about the Trinity. 
there is absolutely no inferiority in the Trinity. The primacy of God the Father and the order of the Trinity in no way implies the inferiority of God the Son or God the Holy Spirit. But God the Son and God the Spirit, Holy Spirit, submit to God the Father not because they are less than. They are not. They are equal in authority, glory, and power. But they submit voluntarily to the Father because the Father has given them tasks to do and tasks they are to undertake. So, for example, in our salvation, what the Father has planned, the Son has performed, and the Holy Spirit applies to God's elect. So they all have different roles, but this is a beautiful picture every family and every marriage ought to embrace. You see, gentlemen, if you're the kind of dad where you have to go around all the time to your kids, you know, you tighten up your belt buckle and go, I'm going to tell you and I'll show you. Do you know who, who's boss here? You've lost that particular battle if that's your constant MO. And if you're the kind of husband and you have to go to your wife, woman, I'll tell you and you better do this and here we go again. I mean, frankly, you're done. And that's why in the context of marriage, the submission principle that's established in the New Testament is in no way implies inferiority intellectually or in the woman's capacities. But because there is a role that each have been given by God, they each must accomplish those roles. But what do we know? And we have to think this way. We know historically men have made a hash out of these verses. And they go down lines that God does not go down. But we can't abandon the verses just because people make a hash out of them. Listen to Derek Prime. And listen carefully. This is a wonderful quote. There is a divine intended order in the creation of male and then female. This sequence was not a mistake. Men and women are equal in value. And as persons and different and distinct in the roles they are to play. Let me just read that again. There's a divine order intended in creation for male and then female. This sequence was not a mistake. Men and women are equal in value and as persons and different and distinct in the roles they are to play. Which someone once said is part of the delightful chemistry of human relationships. Right? Men, aren't we glad? Aren't we glad that our wives are different than us? Aren't we glad, in all honesty, that they look different than us? Right? You don't need to know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. We, you'll give me just a little bit of liberty here, right? The tough topic. So Friday morning, you know, the day started, and, and there's my wife, and there am I, and we're getting ready, and, and there she was. And I was thinking about this talk and the differences, and I'm like, I was just looking at my wife like, this is amazing. You are beautiful. And I told her that. I said, you are beautiful. I said, you just look lovely today. Don't ever change that outfit ever. Wear that forever. You look, you look great. What was I doing? I was enjoying the delightful chemistry of human relationships. And if you're married or dating, you know what I mean. If you're not, just wait. You're going to discover what I mean. But the point is, Besides the fact that I just scored like massive brownie points with my wife, the fact is our differences wonderfully matter. They wonderfully matter. Okay, then look at verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. 
Now what's Paul, Paul's concern here? Well, the concern Paul is giving here is that women desire to learn doesn't give them the privilege to teach, preach, to have authority or have an authoritative position over the men in the church. But even that statement has to be tempered by the context. Because Paul doesn't have a full stop there. There, there, There's not a full stop after teach. I do not permit a woman to teach a man, period. So this statement is tempered by the context. I do not permit a woman to teach a man in the church. So a woman can do a wonderful job teaching a man law, teaching a man medicine, teaching him history, psychology, or she can do a wonderful job, in the case of our home, more brownie points, teaching her husband how to fix things or to keep a budget. And a man can surely learn from a woman about the Bible in colleges, seminars, seminaries, and books. However, the principle that Paul is laying down is that when the whole church assembles, when men and women assemble, the teaching function, which is, which is a ruling function, is to be a male function primarily. Now, do not misunderstand me. Paul isn't saying that under no circumstance ever is a woman permitted to teach because the Bible doesn't even say that. Paul is not entirely ruling out women teaching. That would be a wooden, flat, dead interpretation. Priscilla and Aquila, Acts 18.26, instructed Apollos. But it was private and not in public worship in the church. Women can teach other women. Titus 2, 3, and 4. And in many seminaries, women teach students. So women travel across the country and they give lectures and seminars in the name of Christ. And we should thank God for the good ones. Women missionaries teaching and preaching Jesus Christ. And a woman should be able to come before the congregation and speak if the elders would like her to. But again, the context of specifically pastoral rule. That's the only thing Paul is dealing with here. Pastoral rule, which is chiefly expressed how? In the preaching and teaching ministry of the church, Paul says, no, a woman can't do that. So, the pastor's wife or other women in the church serving as co-pastors or elder is not a biblical liberty. So then the question has to come, right? You have to say, who says that, right? You say, is this a cultural issue unique for Ephesus or is this a universal principle given to all of us? Is this truth for all time or just truth for a certain period of time? Well, let's let Paul answer that question, verse 13. Hey, Paul, why don't you allow women to teach or have authority over men? Now, before we get to Paul's answer, the common reaction here is when you look at verse 11 and look at verse 12, people say, well, it's a cultural issue for Paul's day. There was something going on in the church at Ephesus. We don't know what it was about. And if Paul was alive today, he would change things. But the problem of that line of thinking is that Paul does not argue his command from culture. He argues his command from creation. He doesn't argue his command from culture. He argues from the scripture, from the divine order that's inherent in creation. Hey, Paul, why don't you allow women to teach or have authority over a man? Verse 13, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. And that is the reason. So this is not a pragmatic statement. 
This is not a cultural statement exclusively for his day. He's not somehow uninformed about God's will. This has to do with the Bible. His answer is a Bible answer. In fact, it's the first three chapters of the Bible, which if you pay attention to these things, the first three chapters of the Bible since about the mid-19th century has been under massive attack, and the evil one knows this. Because now in relation to human sexuality, we have people saying, and sometimes Christian people saying, come on, Christians, grow up. Things have changed. Times have changed. 1 Timothy 2 is cultural, and Genesis 1 through 3 is mythical. So when you think that way, 1 Timothy 2 is cultural, Genesis 1 through 3 is mythical, you can say things like, well, that means that marriage definitions are probably debatable. So the whole thing just didn't happen the way that it was written. How do we reply to that? Well, we say, come, come now. That used to be the language of liberal scholarship in the beginning of the 20th century. That was people who denied the Bible's inspiration. Now it's people who accommodate the Bible to the culture of this day. But Paul doesn't do that, neither should we. Paul begins with Adam and Eve, and he actually names, right? He names them. He begins with creation and tells us that the way God made this world matters. And he does this because the principles established at creation are timeless principles. They are universal principles. And one day, every believer will enjoy those principles because the truth that Paul speaks of is grounded in the unfailing, unerring purpose of God when he created the world. And just think with me for a moment. Is it not legitimate that God, the creator, decides what his creation can and cannot do? I mean, isn't that reasonable that God who created everything can legitimately decide what the creation can do and what the creation can't do? And isn't it lovely that the creator has chosen to tell us that which we need to know in creation? So for those of us who say, well, okay, that's fine. I understand all this. But but the cross of Jesus Christ has put A scripture like this has put this role issue to rest because men and women are the same now. And we would say to them, they are absolutely the same in status, absolutely, and we should thank God for it. But they are not the same in role and function in the church. Listen to J.I. Packer, another quote that I think will help us. The man-woman relationship is intrinsically or inherently non-reversible. This is, a, this is part of the reality of creation. A given fact that nothing will change. Certainly redemption will not change it because grace restores nature. Grace does not abolish nature. You see, the paradise that was there in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis is what we are going to return here, return to, but only new and improved because of Christ. So no one can, no one may, impose on women restrictions which the scripture does not support. But what does history teach us? History teaches us that men have typically done that. Point of fact, in the church of Jesus Christ, Christian women have the liberty to do in general all things except really one. And that is elder pastoral rule, which is chiefly expressed how? In the teaching and preaching ministry to the assembled church. However, we cannot neglect the role that God has given to men and the role that God has given to women in the body of Christ in light of this creation principle that Paul has given. You see, congregation, listen carefully. Order matters. Not in status, no, 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 but in function and role. Equality and functionality 
a functional equality and functional difference can exist side by side. There, there really isn't any problem. On earth, men and women, as it is in heaven, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all with different roles, all with the same status, all living together in perfect harmony. And in Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, what do we have? In Jesus Christ, we have the picture of meekness. We have the picture of submission. We have a picture of a servant. We have the picture of a servant in a self-abnegating way. That is the picture of the highest value of humanity and not the lesser. And you cannot forgive that. Forget that. So we have the context. We have the command. And now we need the conclusion. Our, Our time is done. We're going to say verse 15 for another time. That's a doozy as well. But what do we need to know? Well, we need to know this. To equate worth and to equate value with status or rank or prestige or better than is an unbiblical notion. In fact, it's a purely secular notion because I suspect when we come into this place, we would have to constantly wipe this notion off of us. Hey, what do you drive? Hey, where do you live? Hey, how much do you have? Hey, what do you look like? Hey, what is it you do? Hey, are you a man or are you a woman? Wow, you must really be something or you must really be nothing depending on those things. And the Bible screams, no. The Bible answers, the body is a unit. Though it's made up of many parts, and though all parts are many, they form one body. This was done so that there should be no division, but that each part has equal concern for the other. And not even our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, not even our Lord fights submission because at the final judgment, the Son Himself says, 1 Corinthians 15, 28 says this, the Son Himself will be made subject to God the Father who put everything under Him So that God may be all and in all. In other words, submission is in the very nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if he's okay with it, then ladies and gentlemen, we must be and we should too. I hope this helps. Let's bow together and pray. Our God and Father, we, we thank you for your help. We pray for the grace to understand these things. And we ask for the grace we need not to be put off by these things. Help us to understand what equality is, what status means and doesn't means, mean. And help us to understand who we are in Jesus Christ. We have roles to play. Just like you did Father and you did Son and you did Holy Spirit. We pray that we would play them well in the time that you've given us. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be our abiding portion both now and forevermore. Amen.